When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Brutes. Pritchard. Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. I let that one linger a little bit because it's global. And it's a bonus show. Got to fill some time today. Well, let's get to it, Bruce. Uh, we're going to talk about all things global wrestling, at least when you were there. Uh, but let's kind of set the stage, so to speak, catch everybody up, uh, as a reminder. And I know we covered it briefly in our WrestleMania seven episode, which is available in our archives. Uh, one of our more controversial episodes, feel free to check it out. Uh, but remind everybody again, how the exodus from WWE happened, uh, what you did in the meantime, and then we'll pick up with when you started with global. Well, uh, quite simply, I was fired in, I guess, what, May of 1991? Is that right? Yeah. Sounds about right. For being a dick, really. Uh, I didn't get along with the guy they put in charge over me, John Filippelli, and, and Vince let me go. I lost that battle. I was a young, cocky kid that believed the world revolved around him and didn't get along with the folks that Vince saw as taking his company to the next point where he wanted to go. So I was unceremonially fired. And for the longest time, I didn't do a whole lot of anything, you know, quite frankly. And then as time progressed, uh, I was looking to get back into the WWE, WWF at the time. I was looking to do anything that would get me back in the, in the wrestling business. So the opportunity came up. I was actually in San Antonio for the WWF Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view. I was there visiting folks. I had gone down to say hello. They were doing TV in Austin and then they did the Tuesday in Texas in San Antonio. And I got a phone call from the one and the only Paul Heyman, sir, if I may. And Paul uh, was asking, what exactly are you doing now? I have heard rumblings that you're going back to work for the WWF. And I explained to Paul that I was just down saying hello and that the chances of me coming back were kind of slim to none at that point in time. And Paul explained to me that Eddie Gilbert had taken over as the booker for the Global Wrestling Federation that had set up shop in Dallas, Texas at the old Sportatorium as we affectionately knew it, and they renamed it the Global Dome. But Eddie Gilbert was taking over the reins as the creative force for the Global Wrestling Federation and wanted to know if I was interested in uh, doing some work with Eddie. So were you still, you know, holding out, you're there visiting for Tuesday in Texas. 
were you still holding out hope that you would be able to work your way back in? And when you get this uh, call, do you think, Hey, maybe I ought to try to use this call as leverage to get my way back into the WWF or what's the thinking at the time? Frankly, at this point, I was pretty damn sure that I wasn't going back to the WWF. So there was no, there was no leverage to be had. I was flat out told no and how happy everybody was that I was gone. (laughs) So, um, and who would have communicated that with you? Would that be a conversation you had with Vince? I mean, do you get, Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. While he sat there and ate a tomato and mustard sandwich. So, okay. We'll come back to tomato and mustard because that is worthy of a conversation, but catch me up. Uh, you have that conversation backstage at Tuesday in Texas and you say, Hey, just wanted to check in, see how everything's going, let you know I'm available. And then he takes a bite of the sandwich and says, no, we don't need you. Everybody's happy. You're not here. Chomp. Goddamn pal. They're still getting the confetti out of their hair in Stanford celebrating you leaving just too soon. Never say never. Not right now. So at that point I knew I wasn't coming back, but that was the purpose of the visit. I mean, we can say it was to visit old friends, but it's to take the temperature as to whether or not it had been enough time and they were missing you. Yeah. In person. Yeah. So uh, I was taking that opportunity. They were close and I just wanted to go down and say hello and, and find out, you know, face to face. What's the deal. So here's just a, a silly question. I'm sure. But when you say you got the call, when you were there, did you have like one of those Zach Morris brick phones backstage at Tuesday in Texas, or did you have a pager or how do they communicate with you when you're there? Do they call the building and just know you're going to be there? Heyman tracked me down at the hotel. Wow. And called the hotel. And, and literally tracked me down at the TV hotel. How fun is that? I was staying and I, I picked up the phone and it was Paul Heyman. So, um, we talked and Eddie Gilbert and I, you know, we went back to our days in mid South, the universal wrestling federation with bill Watts and, uh, Eddie and I had always been friends. So without a doubt, I was interested because nobody else was knocking on my door at that time. Right. I wasn't really doing anything. And you had uh, probably, uh, you know, a nice little nest egg safe for yourself from working with the WWF, but probably you're seeing the, the end of that in sight and you think, man, I, I got to get back to work. Yes. And I figured that by being on national television, because the Global Wrestling Federation was on ESPN, so they had national TV. They were on every afternoon, like at three o'clock in the afternoon. And it was a great opportunity to at least get my name and get my mug back on TV and get people, instead of saying, hey, wonder what the hell Bruce Pritchard's doing, talk about, hey, I saw Bruce Pritchard on ESPN. Yeah, I mean, uh, even now, what a coveted spot that would be. You know, I know a lot of people here, you know, every day at 3 o'clock, but even now, if you had a daily show on ESPN, I mean, wrestling promotions would kill for that opportunity to be there. Um, Sure. So what are the terms? I know you're not going to tell us money, but what are the terms of your deal? I mean, do you come in on a per appearance deal? Do you do an annual? Are you doing quarterly? Is it just per night? Uh, how does that shake out? Who do you negotiate that with? How do you become officially signed with the company? (laughs) Signed with the company. Conrad, since this is a bonus show, let's talk money. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm in. Let's talk contracts. It took fucking 50 episodes, but we did it. 
we're going to talk money. Okay. Real dollars here. Okay. Probably going to get a lot of heat. Uh, who cares? We're disclosing the uh, sums of uh, some of the deals. Well, my deal anyway. Only one I was really privy to. You won't get any heat from Eddie Gilbert, guaranteed. Hey. Just saying. I, I struck a deal. It was a lot of negotiations back and forth. But uh, essentially, Eddie said to me when I finally talked to Eddie, he says, man, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you what I can pay you. Um, but I could sure use your help. I'd love to work with you, and it's an opportunity. Yeah, he was basically selling me on... On why it's cheap. Why, well, no, on why it would be good for me to be back on TV. Sure. And the exposure, which is essentially all I was looking for at that point. Yeah, nobody's done that in a long time. DNA. Yeah. Um, um, so I basically uh, said, well, you know, no, nah, man, you won't insult me. And then the motherfucker just went and insulted me. <laughs> well, what was I, it? My deal was a per night deal. All right. And it was one of the larger guarantees. I will say that. One of the larger guarantees that they, they were handing out at the time. But it was a guarantee. And in addition to guarantee, I had my trans paid and my hotel. Not a bad deal. I'm not, not hating that so far. Um, yeah, so that was it. Oh, come on now. What did Bruce Pritchard come in for? What was your nightly fee? One hundred dollars. And it wasn't even cash. It was a check. Is this real? 100% real. So when you would tape multiple shows on the same day, do you get paid a hundred dollars per episode or a hundred dollars for the day? I got one hundred dollars. So coming, kid. So if you're on a show where they tape five episodes, when we watch that episode thirty years later, we can say to ourselves, you know, you want to break it down? Yeah, it's probably about twenty dollars per episode. Yeah. (laughs) But hey, here's here's the thing you have to take into consideration. I was one of the highest paid guys there. And my money was guaranteed, plus I got trans and hotel. No, listen, I'm not mocking the money. I mean, at the end of the day, this was a great opportunity, no doubt. They were trying something new. They had to do it smart and economically. If they don't have money to give away, you've got a business to run. And I know a lot of people will crap on the $100. And yes, it's fun to talk about money. But at the same time, when you're starting something, if you're paying people top dollar, uh, you're not going to be in business very long. You've got to create the revenue first. So they were trying something, uh, respect to them, kudos to them. And let's kind of catch everybody up about what their model was, because it seems kind of out of the blue. Do you know how they managed to wrangle this ESPN contract? And then what the business plan was about a daily show. And then the time slot of three o'clock, I get it, but I'm sure some people listening, uh, may need you to fill in the blanks. Well, when they started, they were just looking for syndicated programming. And I wasn't there when they started. So to say that I know their plan, I really don't. However, when the opportunity came up to have a national cable exposure, and especially with ESPN, the, you know, they, they jumped at it. And it, was, it came up because Max Andrews, who was revealed to be the actual money behind the promotion later on, at, at first – 
no one really knew. There, there were rumors of a guy in Atlanta that had a lot of money that was financing the GWF. Um, no one ever heard of his name. No one ever you know, actually got confirmation that there really even was a guy. Some people thought it was Joe Pettacino. Um, there were a lot of different rumors. Bill Eady was involved at first. But Max Andrews was, was the guy that I knew that was involved and who did have the money and who was financing it when I came in. And Max was a, a syndicated guy that syndicated television shows. He had a golf show. Max himself was a golfer. And he had connections with ESPN and, of course, later on with the Golf Channel and what have you that kind of opened that door to ESPN and be able to get this on. I don't know what their what their money situation was. I can't imagine it being a whole lot. But the opportunity to be on ESPN on a weekly, you know, daily basis was a big deal. A great opportunity, yeah. Um, it's worth mentioning that Global uh, started out of Dallas, of course, in June of 1991, and it folded in September of 1994. And you came in in November of 91. I think I came in in either December or January in that time frame. So Eddie and I talked in November. Okay. So less than six months after they start though. So you weren't there at the very beginning, but you're in relatively quickly. And, and when you're brought in, um, how did they bring you in? Like, what was your, what were you brought in to do? Like when, the, when Eddie's saying, Hey, we need your help. Did you perceive that to mean booking, producing, uh, writing, on camera, all the above. When he first pitched me, Eddie pitched me to come in and be a color commentator. And he said, I have an idea beyond that. If you're up for it to evolve from a color commentator to actually being a manager and being an on-air talent and continue at first come in as a babyface color commentator, make the switch to heel and become a heel manager and continue doing heel commentary on the show. So, uh, didn't tell me what it was, but he also said, and I would act, you know, uh, actually like to work with you on the creative side. If, if you'd like to help me there as well, can't pay you any extra, but I'd love your head. Maybe we can build this into something that we can all possibly make money on down the line. So, um, what were you, what else were you doing for work at the time? I mean, this is not going to be something that you can, it could be your only gig. What else were you doing in your real life? Uh, I would go to heartbreakers, which is down in Dickinson, Texas. It's a gentleman's establishment. Wait a minute. The strip club you used to go to is in a town called Dickens. Dick and son. Dick Dick and son. Wow. Okay. Didn't expect that. Yes. And, uh, I, I did that a lot. I tanned a lot. Um, so you, you were a bum. I was a bum. Yeah. Okay. Um, at that point in my life, I had, I had say I'd made some decent money and saved some of it. So I, I, that wasn't really an issue at that point. It became an issue later on, but at that point wasn't necessarily an issue. Uh, let's talk about the building because they're taping these shows in a world famous building, at least in the wrestling world that you're very familiar with. Uh, so you got to spend some extended time there. Tell everybody about the global dome. 
The Global Dome was the world-famous sportatorium at Cadiz and Industrial in downtown Dallas, Texas, where the Von Erichs became famous. It was the home base and the offices of world-class championship wrestling, Fritz Von Erichs, old office, and essentially it was a tin piece of shit. Boy, can you hear everybody just wanting to kill me right now for calling the world famous Sportatorium a tin piece of shit? Well, uh, here's but the those deal, that but, work there can't right. argue that. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's worked there, all the shoot interviews, all the books, all the DVDs, they'll all tell you that while, well, yes, it was famous and a lot of iconic moments in wrestling happened there, the building was, uh, you know, it's not exactly Barclays. Yeah, no, it's it's not no, it's not even the Barclays uh, storage house. So catch everybody up. Um, what day of the week? What was the monthly taping schedule? We know now, like Raw's on Monday, SmackDown's on Tuesday. Uh, what did it look like for global global tapings back in the day? Friday night once a week, and you would you know we would get there early. When I say early, I'd probably show up about uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We would start taping around 4. We'd do interviews and do all the opens for the shows. And then just do a shitload of wrestling matches back to back to back to back to back. And actually, you know, in, in, in reality, we didn't shoot that many matches because... Two of the shows during the week were kind of package shows that we would combine other things and just do different wraparounds for and, and repackage the other three shows that we did during the week. So, you know, I'd, I'd show up there and Eddie would get there with Doug and we would talk about what we wanted to do that night. During the week, Eddie and I spent an awful lot of time on the phone just going over different ideas and what he was looking to accomplish that week. And so we had a, had a pretty good idea. And then one by one, we would start bringing guys into the office and go over what he wanted that night. So when you first get there, uh, your first day, is that when you, um, see bill 80 for the first time in years? And what's no, that conversation? No, like? Bill was gone. Bill was gone by that point. Okay. And he had, I guess, taken over from bill at that point. I didn't realize that he was, once he was out, he was out, out. Correct. Yeah. Okay. He, he wasn't there when I was there. Yeah. Um, so talk, let's talk a little bit before we get to hot stuff. Let's talk a little bit about Joe Petacino. Uh, his wife is Bonnie Blackstone. Do I have that right? Correct. Yes. And they were both involved in the management capacity. Of course you, you referenced, uh, Andrews a few minutes ago, but let's talk about Joe Petacino. Uh, a lot of wrestling fans, have questions about Joe and consider him one of the more interesting characters from that time. Uh, catch everybody up, tell everybody a little bit about your experience in working with Joe Petticino. Through the years, I knew Joe Petticino from his pro wrestling weekly show that he used to do in Atlanta, Georgia, which was a combination show that he would get tapes from all of the different territories across the nation. And he had a weekly syndicated program that was highlighting all the different territories all around the country. And he would sit behind a desk and 
I think he I think he used Gordon solely for some of the things, but he would just catch everybody up to date on the different happenings in the world of professional wrestling. I don't know what Joe's background was to get him into that spot, but he was able to get the time and he was able to syndicate that show um, across the country. And he had some fairly decent slots and even WWE had cooperated with him in the early days. And after a while, yeah, everybody did, you know, everybody wanted to be on, on a nationally syndicated show. So obviously WWE was the first one to kind of opt out and no longer send him any footage or cooperate with him, but he still would talk about them and, and talk about the goings on. And eventually it just went away. But Joe loved wrestling, always wanted to be around it. A really nice guy. I mean, just a, you know, one of those people that is hard not to like. So he, he was a, a good person, I believe, deep down, that just loved the wrestling business and wanted to be involved in it any way he could. He saw himself as a broadcaster and was looking for any opportunity to, to do that on a national level. And the Global Wrestling Federation, when it started, they he got involved somehow. Uh, I don't know how. I still, to this day, don't know how Joe really got involved in that and, and became what he became. But he ran the, you know, kind of oversaw everything and helped run the, the day-to-day of whatever they had to do day-to-day and tried to help in, in getting syndicated and getting that show out. Now, his wife, uh, Bonnie Blackstone, that actually rings a bell. Didn't she do something with the WWF for a little while? Yeah, Bonnie came in and did the stand-up interviews. Basically, she was the female Gene Okerlund for a while. Um, real uh, pretty girl. She had, you know, I, personally, I liked her because she kind of had that Southern charm. And she had a Southern drawl and all the things that they hate in New York. But she was, she was pretty, she was easy on the eyes and she always wanted to be a broadcaster as well. And she did the interview segments very well, I thought, and I liked the fact that she was different and that she didn't, you know, have the, that Midwestern or New York feel to her. I I liked the, the Southern charm, if you will, of Bonnie and she lasted for a little while up in WWE before Vince just, ah, Southern draw. Can I, uh, can I just guess looking at Joe Petticino and Bonnie Blackstone that Joe Petticino was a pretty good salesperson. Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect father's day gift idea? I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see paint your life, transform your photos into a one of a kind hand painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. 
Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Yes. Yeah. You can always tell when a big old fat guy's got a pretty good looking wife. That dude can sell. You know, he can. <laughs> I'm a big old fat guy. I can say that. Um, let's talk a little bit. About- only us fat guys can call other guy, other fat guys fat and only can talk about fat guys. Yeah. You skinny fucks can't say fuck all about us fat guys. Nah, I don't care. Tweet me. You've told the story uh, briefly about your first night in and they didn't want to give you a lot of direction and just told you to kind of shoot with everything. I know you've told the story on another episode, but uh, do it again here now, because a lot of people may not have listened to that show before you listen to this one. Well, it's funny. You, you say they didn't give me a lot of preparation to them. They were giving me a lot of preparation by telling me, you know, okay, now we're, we're different than WWF and, and WCW. We shoot here. You know, if a guy had a, a different name or wrestled somewhere else, we talk about that here. You know, we, we bring it all out into the open. We we treat our fans as, as one of us, and and we know that they, they read the dirt sheets, and they know what's going on. So we just we just tell it like it is, and we acknowledge people's past, and, and we get into it here. We shoot here. So just feel free and, and just shoot on everything. So I go out. And at the time, they, the big issue was Del Wilkes as the Patriot was a North American champion. And this mysterious newcomer, the Dark Patriot, had entered the Global Wrestling Federation and was going after the Patriot. And it was a mystery as to the identity of the Dark Patriot and the reason that the Dark Patriot hated the Patriot so much and why he was coming after his North American title. So we do a couple of warm-up matches to kind of get used to each other. Myself and uh, John Horton, uh, Craig Johnson, I think was his name. Uh, his real name is John Horton. And we, we start to call the matches. And as we start to call the matches, he, he talks about uh, the mysterious Dark Patriot. I said, well, it's not so mysterious. I mean, that's Doug Gilbert. That's Eddie's little brother. His, his brother's the booker. You know, Eddie here, so, I mean, they, they, they just put him under a hood, and uh, they're going to work a program with him and uh, the regular Patriot coming up here real soon. And silence. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, was I shooting too much? Was, <laughs> was, was that wrong? And it kind of curtailed the, hey, let's just shoot on everything. Right. Direction that they gave me. Was, hey, you want to shoot on everything? Let's shoot on everything. There's a reason the business is work, folks. There's a reason that we tell stories. There's a reason that we take creative license. Because the truth isn't always that interesting. So uh, let's talk about um, your first night in and who you met 
in the locker room because global was known for kind of helping give a big stage to a lot of stars, the Patriot Dale Wilkes, Scott Levy, who would go on to become Raven, the handsome stranger who would become Marcus Bagwell, Cactus Jack, uh, and then other folks like John Hawk, who would become JBL, Jerry Lynn, uh, Barry Horowitz, uh, Booker T and Stevie Ray, the lightning kid who would become the one, two, three kid who was there, uh, when you first got in and what was your interaction like with them? The two guys that I met first when I walked in were Scott Levy and Sean Waltman. And I believe that, uh, Scott was Scotty, the body at that point, And Sean was the lightning kid. Um, and then of course, you know, Eddie came and, and I got to, uh, reacquaint myself with, uh, Doug, his brother, which was the first time I was really around Doug. But, uh, I remember seeing Jerry Lynn and the lightning kid that first night in and good God, what incredible matches those two bastards had great chemistry. You know, they, they worked with each other, I guess, since they were, were young breaking into the business and, uh, the lightning kid, Sean Waltman was relatively new in the business, but he worked and he carried himself kind of is a, is an old pro in the way that he, he looked at shit, um, a very old soul, if you will, in a lot of respects, but that bastard could go. But, uh, those were the first two guys I remember and my first time going into the sportatorium and, and it was all dark and standing there with those two guys, just kind of looking at the history of, of the building and talking about it a little bit. Uh, Barry Horowitz was there. I knew Barry from the WWF when Barry was an enhancement talent up there. Great guy. And he was getting an opportunity to do a little something with an angle at that time. And then, you know, you see your old friends, Bill Irwin, Skandor Akbar, Black Bart, and people like that that have been around the business forever and, and just getting reacquainted a little bit. It's worth mentioning that uh, Sean Waltman, when you were talking about meeting him for the first time, uh, 19 years old. Yeah, he was young. That's he was young. Else, so man. was, uh, you know, Scotty was young too at that time. Scotty was in his early twenties, but I'm just saying you, you regard already at that time. He was one of the best in-ring performers in the business. People were raving about his matches with Jerry Lynn, 19 years old. Can't even buy a beer. Yeah. Um, Jerry Lynn, he could drink it though. <laughs> uh, I don't think he uh, drinks anymore. I think, um, He's moved on to other things. Jerry Lynn, uh, was a guy that we, uh, haven't talked about a lot on the show, but he was a big part of global. Uh, do you have any fun Jerry Lynn stories you could share with us? I think he's in Nashville these days. He is. And, and Jerry Lynn is one of those nice guys, almost too nice to be in the wrestling business. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man. And he's another one of those great talents that if he had been three, four inches taller, would have been a megastar. He was just that good. Now on the, you know, his promos weren't that great, but his in-ring talent, I think overshadowed all of that. And he, he could go with anybody, um, later in, in later years, in my opinion, I, I think that Jerry Lynn was also a great trainer and, just the way that he could explain 
psychology and wrestling to younger talent, I, I thought he had a gift. And I thought Jerry Lynn was one of the best guys that never made it in the business. And you're, he made it in the bit. He made yeah. it in the business, but but to the when I say make it, he make didn't it get what he deserves. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think there's a good reason why he's not involved in NXT? I don't. I don't know if maybe he just doesn't want to be in Orlando. I don't know if they've ever reached out to him. But Jerry, in my opinion, I, I always thought was one of those guys who gave great advice and was able to get his message across in a simple way. We'll talk about some of the other talents to close the show, similar to the way we did Houston. Uh, but first let's talk a little bit more about Joe Petticino. Uh, his on air role was more like that of a commissioner and he hosted his own segments. Uh, and some of the things that he did at the time, I think he even did this on global, uh, was discussing all the other federations news. Um, he was doing this on global at the time too. Was he not? He was, that was a part of their, we shoot here and we talk about the other federations, which again, from a producer, my producer hat on and in a talent and promotions hat, I never understood promote your own shit, right? Nothing else. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to give them publicity and give them time. It just makes people in my mind compare and contrast and go, oh shit, that's right. They're doing that over there. Well, I'm just going to go watch that. So I never like drawing attention to the to the opposition or giving people reason to tune out of your product. Do you think that um, the goal was, hey, people may not be into our stuff, but if they feel like they're getting their scoops, they'll keep tuning in? Is that the, the, the line of thinking? I think the line of thinking was that, well, we're global and we're just as big as them, and if they think that we're affiliated with them by mentioning their storylines and stuff – that that'll rub off on us. Is that really the thinking as far as the name you just referenced? Well, we're global, so we're just as big as them. They were trying to come up with a a word that didn't say world. Yes, I do. I truly (laughs) do. I mean, it's kind of like when Bill Watts did the, we won't have the world wrestling, well, the Universal (laughs) Wrestling Federation. Um, And then just, yeah, silly. Um, any memories of working with Joe? I know you said he kind of fancied himself as a broadcaster and he was a likable guy, but do you have any fun stories you can share with us about him hosting his own segments, any ribs that he may have had pulled on him or pulled on others or, um, any funny little anecdotes you can share? (laughs) Actually, none I can share, but, uh, you know, Joe, Joe liked to, I, I was told when I first got there that Joe fancied himself as being the boss and that Joe kind of wanted to be for lack of a better term, the Vince McMahon of the global wrestling federation. And that's how he saw himself and to treat him accordingly, if you will. Now, if you tell me to treat somebody like Vince McMahon, well then I'm going to fuck with him. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just not that. I'm not that guy that's going to go out of my way. Oh, well, excuse me, Mr. Petticino. And I, and I didn't, I just kind of treated Joe like everybody else. And I don't know if he liked that or didn't like that. I, I was told on more than one occasion that, you know, yeah, you know, Joe kind of likes it when you kind of kiss up to him a little bit. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, 
not me. But he he kind of strutted around like like he was the boss. But shortly after I turned heel, I think it was, shortly after that, Joe didn't come in for all the tapings. And it was Eddie kind of running things. And from time to time, you know, Max Andrews would stick his head in and say hello. But they didn't, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of uh, hands-on going over any of the creative or, or any of the uh, day-to-day with the talent, if you will. They, they kind of stayed arm's length at best. And that was mainly Eddie. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the way the booking was done. You know, you talked about how Eddie was kind of handling all the booking, and you've given us a kind of a glimpse behind the curtain with the way that you and Pat would do it. Uh, what was Eddie's method for writing television? Would he go to the big shows and then work backwards? Would he write it in one-week blocks? What was kind of the method to the madness for Eddie Gilbert writing TV? <laughs> go to the big shows. We didn't have any big shows. You know, it, it was strictly episodic television, man. It was It was daily television, which was different than your weekly television. So Eddie tried to take the main show that was syndicated and all of his angles and all of his storylines mainly developed on the, the main syndicated television show and everything else worked around that and supported that. So the other shows that were on ESPN throughout the week, they just supported, you, you kind of got a week's worth of storyline in, in those five shows, but the one main syndicated show, he went week to week. Now, Eddie would, man, son of a bitch was detail oriented. Like you wouldn't believe Eddie loved to map out, plan out and have an idea where the hell he was going in the future. So I would say Eddie was a good six weeks to two months out as far as his planning and his television. And we would get on the, we would get on the phone, God, two, three times a week right after the shows would air on ESPN and just talk. And we, we would talk about what we just did and what we're going to do next week and get out in front as far as we could. So we had a pretty good idea of where the hell we were going over the next, you know, six to eight weeks and had, you know, had, we knew, okay, we do this here this week. We do this next week. We'll do this the third week. And you knew where you were going. So he was good about being far out and working backwards. How crazy is it when we're sitting here listening to all this work that you put into this, uh, and to know that, you know, people can watch that now and you got $20 for it. Well, okay. Hang on. Let's, let's break that down even more. So if we did five shows in one night, that's $20, but then Let's say I was all, on the phone with him yeah, probably all five calls. or six hours during the week. Yeah. It could break down to, wow. wonder if I was even making minimum wage. Well, that's my question is, you know, I, a lot of times we fans hear when guys want royalties and stuff and we think, ah, that's bullshit. But then you hear like this example and you're like, okay. Um, I didn't really think about it that way. You know, we did it out of a love of the business and a passion for the business. Sure. It was it was simply something that I enjoyed doing. Eddie loved doing it. 
it was also, as I said before, an opportunity to be on TV every, every day and get out in the public so that, uh, hopefully I could, could be somewhat relevant in the wrestling business and, and possibly move on to WCW or back to WWF. One of the two. No, I'm not disparaging it. I mean, because let's be clear, that was the way we started the podcast and Hey, it worked out. Ding, ding, ding. Roll time. Um, you have told me before that Eddie had big ideas, but unfortunately global didn't have a big budget. Can you give me an example of what you mean behind a big idea, but just no budget for it? Just not being able to lure big name talent. For example, you know, Eddie would have loved to have brought in Terry Funk, but Terry's not going to come in and work for a hundred dollars a night. Sure. Terry would have loved to have brought in Jerry Lawler and done something with Lawler and Lawler wasn't interested in, in working for that either. So when you have those kind of barriers, for example, some of the big name talent that's still working on a regular basis, you know, they, they could turn that down to them. They didn't need to be on TV every day. Uh They didn't care about being on TV every day. Uh, for me, I was local. It was a drive. I wasn't doing anything except going to the strip clubs at night, spending money. (laughs) You know what I mean? So at least it gave me a day off of of going out and spending money per se. Um, And it was a nice drive. I I could drive up in five hours, uh, go up there and back. And sometimes I would stay over at the great accommodations that they had for us. Um, Oof. Wow. But, uh, it was fun. It was fun. It was strictly out of, out of a passion for the business, wanting to be a part of it and trying to be a part of growing something and maybe making something out of nothing at that point in time. Um, let's talk about some of the things that, uh, happened while you were there that might be considered interesting. You get a call while you're there. And we've talked about this on a previous episode, but, WCW reaches out to you about coming to work there and they're pitching an angle. And I want you to kind of remind everybody of what that was and the controversy that surrounded that. Well, it, at that point in time, this was at, this was actually before, uh, pitching, pitching the angle with Steve Austin and, and all that with barbarian. Um, I got a call from dusty saying, Hey, we're going to be in uh, baby. We're going to be in Houston and maybe come on down and, and talk to Maggie May and let, let's talk about maybe doing a little thumb with you. But I'd like for you to meet with Maggie at the show in Houston. If you could go on down there. So I think they were in Houston on a Saturday. I had done global on Friday and I went to, uh, I left Dallas and I went to the show on Saturday night in Houston. I met with Magnum TA. And we just talked back and forth. He says, what are you doing? I told him what I was doing and I expressed, he says, well, um, you know, I I see you're working with global. I said, yeah, but that's not what I wanted. You know, not what I want to end up doing. I'm only making what I'm making a hundred bucks and I'd like to be somewhere where I can make a lot more than that. And that's not my, not where I want to be. And I said that from a standpoint of, I wanted more money. I wanted an opportunity to have a steady 
income with a lot more work versus once a week, $100 a week. Well, who wouldn't? Exactly. Um, but it got back to it got back to Eddie that I was unhappy <laughs> in global and had, you know, essentially dissed global. Which was not the case. I wasn't dissing Global from saying, oh, hey, fuck them. It was simply, yeah, I'd like to come to work for you guys. You guys being WCW. And yes, I'm doing Global right now. But if I had my choice, I'd rather be with the big company. Right. The bigger company. Sure. And that's all it was. It was a misunderstanding. But I remember getting to TV the next week. And as soon as I got there, Eddie says, hey, I need to talk to you. And we went up in the stands and talked. And he said, hey, if you're unhappy, leave. So what makes you think I'm unhappy? He says, well, I was told that uh, you weren't happy being here and that you want to go to WCW. I said, Eddie, let me ask you a question. If WCW came knocking on your door and offered you a full-time gig, would you not take it? And he says, well, I don't know. I said, bullshit, you do know. Would you rather work every day for substantially more money, or would you rather come here once a week for whatever the hell money you're making? I said, I told him that I was here and that I would like to be there if the opportunity arose. So, hell yeah, I'm going to look for something else. I said, I, I am happy here. I love working with you. I don't know that there's going to be anything with WCW. But, yes, I did tell him that, <laughs> I'm working here, and if I could work there, I would much rather work at WCW on a full-time basis. And you guys were square after that, and and we were square after that. But it was, you know, I, I did not badmouth uh, Global at all. Sure as hell, not going to badmouth Eddie Gilbert. Love him to death, and um, it wasn't that I was unhappy. It was just simply I wanted more, and you they know, called me. The wrestling business is a weird place. Um, how do you think? That game of telephone made its way back to Eddie. Oh, I know how it did. Uh, you know, Eddie was at the time, I think he had just married Medusa and, uh, Deborah and I, you know, go way back. And I expressed to Deborah, Deborah was there. Deborah was working for WCW at the time. So she was there that night when I was talking to Magnum and I said the same thing to her. I said, you know, Hey, um, I want to go. You know, I want to work here. And so it probably got back to Eddie that, hey, Bruce was there, you know, not wanting to work at Global anymore. I'm sure that's how it happened. But it was simply a misunderstanding and not a, you know, fuck Global and fuck Eddie Gilbert. I was grateful that they gave me an opportunity to be on TV and come work with them. But I was also grateful that WCW was interested in possibly bringing me in on a full-time basis. So why not? Uh, there were some other people there who weren't necessarily, uh, tickled and didn't leave on the best terms. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, talk to me a little bit about doing shows, you know, five at a time. It feels like that would be difficult. You know, we, we remember the days where the WWF would tape raw for next week, right after this week's live raw, but five in a row, Seems like quite the marathon session. How do you do that and keep the crowd into it? How does that affect the way you write TV and the way you position what you're filming and when you're filming? Uh, kind of curious through the logic. Press go and run. 
we we started i think like at seven o'clock at night and man we went for three and a half hours uh and cramming in as much as we possibly could you figure during a one hour episode there's 44 minutes worth of program time and out of that 44 minutes of program time you probably have roughly the way they did it with the Pedicino segments and the stuff they did in Atlanta, you probably had maybe 30 minutes of in-ring of, of things to record in the arena. So if you figure that out, you've got three shows that you've got to do in full. So you've got an hour and a half there of things you have to record in front of a, the live arena and then you have two additional shows that you really only need a couple of mat- new matches for because those two additional shows used footage from the other three. So you maybe have another 30 minutes. So in reality, to do five hours of programming in front of the crowd, you probably only needed to record two to two and a half hours worth of programming. And that's going to take you, you know, roughly right at your, you know, three hours. And we'd start, like I said, we'd start at, at seven. We'd be out of there by 10, 1030 sometimes. Just crank it out. Just, just go, keep going one after the other. Uh, you had, um, a persona that you portrayed there at global that we haven't talked about yet. A karate expert. I fucking got to hear about this. What do you mean? Persona? That's just simply a fact. Remind everybody how many times you're in the uh, Karate Black Belt Hall of Fame. The Black Belt Hall of Fame, uh, three times. And you're in that for being the Artful Dodger? Uh, I don't like your tone, Conrad. Uh, I'm in there for various sort. I was the most outstanding performer. I was the most outstanding instructor. I was just all-around great guy. Uh, You name it. But I am a black belt in karate. I'm a goddamn self-defense expert. And uh, I thought, you know, when I came in, they brought me in as a wrestling expert. And again, that's not a persona. That's just simply a fact. So (laughs) I I came in and and adopted the name, just, you know, the expert uh, for my heel persona. And when it came time that Eddie came back, said, hey, man, let's let's get you in the ring and, and do something. I was like, well, fuck, you sure as hell aren't going to get my fat ass in a pair of tights. And I sure as hell am not taking my shirt off. Um, as Hawk used to say, it's an upper body business. Um, so I figured out, you know, I was trying to figure out ways to cover up my body as best I possibly could. What better way than a karate gi? And being the uh, black belt and expert karate technician that I was I said what the hell so I, I became a uh, the karate man baby to do your karate kung fu shion rather than daddling baby so yeah I was a goddamn top kick I was badass fuck you up oh my gosh speaking of fucking up uh, there was an incident once where Jeff Gaylord attacked Eddie in the locker room you were there what happened? Man, what a crazy night. We we were regular night, you know, doing TV and all this shit. Jeff Gaylord shows up, which from time to time, you know, guys would come in the dressing room and say hello, and maybe they were in the area passing through, what have you. 
Well, Gaylord shows up, says hello to everybody, hangs around for the night, says, hey, Eddie, can I talk to you? And Eddie says, yeah, man, but let me uh, talk to me at the end of the night. Let me get through the through the taping, and uh, I'll talk to you at the end of the night. So Eddie assumed that Gaylord was there to talk about a job. Gaylord had been a mainstay in Dallas and Memphis, and they knew each other, had a history. Well, Gaylord hangs out the entire night. We go out, and I think it was, uh, well, I know it was Doug, but I think it was Doug against Eddie in the match that night, and I was out there with Doug. And we all come back, and the way that the dressing room is set up in Dallas was you, you came through the back door from the crowd, the heels in one door, the baby faces in another door, and then we would, would walk through where the bathrooms were and around a corner and go back, and we dressed back in what used to be Fritz von Erich's office. So the heels route was much shorter than the baby faces. So Doug and I made it back in first. And Doug and I are sitting in the, uh, the dressing room, which was Fritz's old office. And all of a sudden we hear like crash, boom, bang, you know, and all this shit. And you can tell there's a sound when you're, you hear someone hitting flesh on flesh. Oh yeah. You know, there's a, there's a whack. There's a, there's a, a thud. definitive sound, a thud. And next thing I know, I've got my, I have my pants off. Doug had his, had his mask off and had already unbuttoned uh, his gear and had started to take his top off. And we're like, what the fuck is that? So Doug and I go out and Doug had a glass bottle of Coca-Cola that he was drinking. He had it in his hand and we come around the corner and Gaylord was like above, uh, Eddie and, and Eddie came and Doug, Doug actually ran out first. And I hear this crash and Eddie comes around the corner and he's like, go help Doug, go help Doug. And Eddie's like all hunched over. He's, he's bent over and he's holding his head and he's still got, he still has his fists up around his face. He's like, go help Doug. And as I come around the corner, all I see is a trail of blood. And I go running out. Now, keep in mind, all I've got, I've got on a shirt. I don't think I had my jacket on. I've got on my shirt, my underwear, and my socks. But you are and, a black belt, so you're ready. But I am a black belt. you goddamn right I am. So I go running around the corner, and there's Doug outside the building. And I, like, hook him, and I see uh, a car taken up. I'm like, what the fuck was that? What happened? Well, Gaylord, when Eddie came through the door, through the babyface door, and Eddie was walking back into down the hallway, back through the uh, bathrooms there, Gaylord just jumped Eddie from behind and just started throwing live rounds at his head. And Eddie came around when we heard that, and Doug had gotten up first, and Doug had gone around the corner, saw Gaylord hitting his brother, threw his Coke bottle at him. And 
apparently smashed Gaylord right in the face and split his just split his head wide open like a watermelon. And Gaylord turned off and, and just ran and Doug, of course, you know, goes right after him, man. Doug Doug will fight anybody, anytime, anywhere, just for if you say you want to fight. But now, you know, he just sees this guy attacking his brother, and here comes Doug. And Gaylord took off. So we come back. It's like, what the fuck was that? And Eddie says, I have no idea. Because I was just walking through, and I saw Gaylord there. And I walked by, and I said, hey, man, yeah, we'll we'll go back and talk in the office. And he jumped me. (coughs) And nobody knew what the hell was going on. So fast forward one week. We show up uh, to TV the next week and say, hey, man, anybody ever find out what, what the deal was with Gaylord, what, what his hard-on was? There was some promoter in Pennsylvania that Eddie had missed a show. And the promoter said to the dressing room, I'll give $1,000 to anybody that kicks Eddie Gilbert's ass. Oh, my God. Jeff Gaylord went down to Dallas to kick Eddie Gilbert's ass and collect a thousand dollars, which would have been like 10 weeks of working at global. So I get it. Well, goddamn man. Fuck. No, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excusing it. I'm busting balls, but holy shit, a bounty, a real life bounty, a real life bounty. Now, Eddie's response to this, and Eddie, because Eddie reached out to Gaylord and was like, hey, what the fuck? And Gaylord <laughs> told him. And he says, God damn, man, you could have told me we could have we worked it. We could have split the $1,000. Uh, yeah. Only in wrestling. But, yeah, that, w- that was the story behind Gaylord jumping Eddie in the dressing room. Only in wrestling. Only in wrestling. Well, it's, yeah, that's wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. Uh, there's lots of pictures out there of, uh, you doing commentary, uh, or my just, hair looked good, didn't it? Yeah. So that's what I'm going to talk about. How much time did you spend prepping that mullet every day? First of all, it wasn't a mullet. It was all one length. It was just beautifully feathered and styled to perfection. Farrah Fawcett stole my look. Do you hear yourself right now? You just said your hair was feathered. Yeah. Beautifully. I said it was beautifully feathered. How long have you been squatting to pee? You know, we were talking about a good friend of mine uh, that squatted to pee on a plane just today at lunch. But anyway, um, my hair looked good, man. It didn't take me that long to do. It was just naturally beautiful. Got a long line of mane, a beautiful blonde hair, a little, uh, what was that shit called that you used to put in your hair to make it the highlights come out? Dye? No, God damn it. That shit you put in your hair, you know, highlights. Well, it was highlights, but it was the cheap shit that you bought in a bottle and just sprayed and then went out in the sun and it was supposed to lighten your hair. Soul glow. Something like that. Um, I used a lot of that back in the day. Question from Twitter here. How odd is it that Bruce basically decided to live his GWF gimmick in real life now? You're the expert. <laughs> yeah, far from it, but hey. Uh Danny on Twitter wants to know who came up with the handsome stranger gimmick for Buff Bagwell? 
I wasn't there then, but I think that was a Bill Eady, Joe Petticino creation. Probably Eady. Uh, another good question uh, here on Twitter. Who owns the rights to the GWF currently? That's a damn good question. I think I had heard that Max Andrews had sold that shit. I don't know. I really don't know. I know WWE has some of it, but ESPN is still playing playing shit on there, man. I've got it set to record so I can see myself on TV because I'm just that kind of a guy. Frozen Finn on Twitter has a great name for us. Uh, Rip Rogers, don't know when we're going to talk about him again. One of the real characters in professional wrestling. If you're not in the loop on Rip Rogers, what would you recommend that someone watch? And I'm sure you have to have a really fun story or two about Rip Rogers. When it's time to relax, one beer stands clear, beer after beer. Rip Rogers is one of the greatest trainers ever over Ohio Valley Wrestling. And quite the character uh, in his day, man. Rip, Rip, one of the greatest bodies in the business. And I wasn't there when Rip was there. I The only time that I ever worked with Rip Rogers was in OVW. But a great character, a great worker. Uh, I can't tell you why that some bitch didn't get over work uh, in, in any of the larger groups on top because he could do it all. But Rip, Rip was out of there by the time that I got in. So I unfortunately don't have any good Rip ones. Uh, do you have, for those people who may not be super familiar with Rip, do, can you do, even if it's not a spot on impression, give everybody listening an idea of what it might sound like to hear a Rip Rogers conversation? God damn, I can't. I have no idea. I don't even know where I, I can't. I can't replay it in my head. Because most <laughs> most of I were in were in Danny Davis's office listening to him tell a story. I, I I'm sorry, I'm gonna disappoint you. I, I got nothing. I got nothing. Let I think see. that was the book. It was the booking committee you're thinking of. Was the Dark Patriot plan to uh, play out with Dale Wilkes coming back to unmask him? Was Chaz being the son of Tugboat Taylor a shoot? This comes to us from Chris on Twitter. Okay, which one do you want me to answer first? Either or. Patriot Patriot was uh, definitely supposed to be a long-term issue with Dell Wilkes and Doug Gilbert. But Dell had an opportunity to go to Japan, and he took that opportunity. So Dell kind of finished up, dropped the title, moved on. They never got their blow-off match. They never... Uh, Never got that return we were looking for, and we switch. We switched over from the Patriot to Eddie Gilbert and had to turn Eddie babyface and and move on. But yeah, one day we, we were informed that Dell would no longer no longer be with the Global Wrestling Federation. He was happy to come in and do shots in between, but it just didn't make sense. He had a great deal in Japan. Let him go get it. Jason on Twitter wants to know what was the deal with the bungee jump match? I wasn't there, but going back to Chaz and, and Tug Taylor, yes, I was actually real life father and son. Casey Fellows on Twitter, uh, he knows what our audience wants to hear. Got any good Bonnie Blackstone stories? You know, Bonnie was just 
and probably still is just such a damn sweet person that she was that's a no she was along for the rodeo and she wanted she was just looking for that break but no i had a lot of fun with bonnie nice lady well i uh i'm still going through our twitter questions here uh kevin wants to know who came up with the winner's title belt with the soda can bottom center plate well actually it was not a soda can it was actually a tuna fish can top and that was barry horowitz's idea as best i remember (laughs) we sat there talking about a championship belt for barry when he finally won a match and we just got all goofy and barry would eat a shitload of tuna fish all week long he was uh one of those diet guys body guys that was always you know worried about uh, drinking enough water and eating enough protein. And he ate a shitload of tuna fish. So we took the tuna fish top, put that on a belt and just decorated it with some bottle caps and different things around there. And I'm pretty damn sure that was a Barry Horowitz creation. I thought it was genius myself. Uh, Lee on Twitter wants to know your thoughts on Terry Sims. He felt like Sims had charisma, but he seemed like an odd choice at the time as a top baby face. You know, Terry was one of those guys that was considered, I guess you would consider him a journeyman, but he originally started out as Terry Garvin. They changed his name during the kind of sex scandals in the WWF. So as not to confuse him with another Garvin that was going through all that bullshit up there. And they changed it to his real name, Terry Sims. And Terry was another guy that had he been probably, you know, three or four inches taller, might have had an opportunity to be a a big name in the business. He was a damn good, solid worker, but he he just uh, never got that opportunity. But he was a great dancing partner with Eddie Gilbert, pretty much anybody you put him with, but it, it just not ready for prime time. Did you work with any of the Von Ericks uh, when you were at Global, or was that after you too? No, they they came after uh, afterwards, and they came in and long after we had exited premises. Uh, Kevin on Twitter wants to know who stood out to Bruce during his time there, and did he try to help sign anyone from the GWF to the WWF when he returned? Lightning Kid, and we did sign him. Uh, brought him in, and obviously, I think that worked out okay for him. Jerry Lynn was another Dell Wilkes from my time there. When we finally brought Dell Lynn as the Patriot after his Japan run, it was a little bit longer. Bonnie Blackstone, um, Scotty, but Scotty, I think was more from some of the stuff he had done at WCW before that. And other than that, I really can't think of anybody. Skandar Akbar. I don't know when we'll talk huh. about him again. That comes to us from Frank on Twitter. Big Jim Weber, uh, Skandar Akbar, bench press champion. One of the first guys ever to bench press 500 pounds. He was a stud athlete uh, growing up. Akbar was the resident heel manager in the Dallas area before that. He was a great hand in Mid-South for Bill Watts and Leroy McGurk. But tremendous, tremendous mouthpiece during the time. But I I love him. Uh, 
absolutely to death. He had a very dry sense of humor. He used to refer to me as Cleet Dumpster because Cleet Dumpster was the name of the ring announcer in Houston. And every once in a while, if Cleet would miss, I would get in and, and be uh, the ring announcer and pull double duty. And this was much many years later uh, through the Mid-South time. And Act just got a kick out of going, hey, Cleet, Cleet, hey, Cleet, just to kind of fuck with me. But Act was always did double duty. He was in the office, and he would he was the guy that would hand out checks every night and kind of hand you your check and chuckle and go, don't spend it all in one place, kid. Remember, save your money. And I'd look at it and go, God, is it enough to get me home? Um, but he was, you know, he was just that guy that was always around and was always going to be involved in whatever promotion or whatever group was running that area at the time. Wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, from whwradio.com, we've got a question about Iceman King Parsons. Now, we haven't talked about him much here on the show. Any fun Iceman King Parsons stories you can share? You know, Iceman, again, he was he was before and after my time there in Dallas. But I remember when Iceman broke in originally, and he was trained by Lynn Denton, the grappler's dad, and was one of those guys that really had it. And I'm surprised that Iceman didn't make it bigger than he did. He had a great run in world-class championship wrestling. But I think that uh, the, the other groups just kind of passed him over. He didn't have a reputation for being the easiest guy to get along with. I always got along fine with him and never really had a problem with him. But he was he was cool as shit to me. Um. Bob Connors wants to know if you have any crazy gentleman, Chris Adams stories you can share. Wow. The first night that I met Chris was in little rock, Arkansas. And Chris had just been released from prison for his encounter with an American airlines flight attendant where he might've, um, got a little aggressive with her and, and did some time while on an airplane, I think going to Puerto Rico or some international destination. So Chris was booked in Bill Watts Universal Wrestling Federation. It was his first night in, and Chris had spent a lot of time in jail. And this is his, his really first time being on the road, first time being out. The first time that I ever had the pleasure of meeting gentleman Chris Adams. So on this night in Little Rock, Arkansas, Little Rock was a dry town. And they had clubs that you had to be a member of the club. You had to have like a membership to go in and drink. So if you weren't uh, a resident, you were kind of shit out of luck on the alcohol. But if you had, if you knew someone, they could bring guests in and different things. So we, we go out, we, we get to the hotel and Chris is like, Hey mate, would you like to go have a cocktail? And I'm like, Sure. So we get a taxi cab and we have this guy drive us to this club and we don't realize that we can't just walk in. So we go to the front door. The guy tells, Hey man, sorry, I can't let you in. You're not a member. You're not a resident, so on and so forth. And we turn to leave and there's about four, two couples, four people coming up and they're like, Oh my God, aren't you the guy from wrestling? 
and they're talking about me because I was the announcer. It was Chris's first thing in, and then they look at him. And they're like, "Oh my God, you're gentleman Chris Adams." We're like, "Yeah." And I said, "Hey, do you guys members here?" And they said, "Yeah." Can you get us in? So they get us in. We go in and we had quite a bit of uh, quite a bit to drink. And Little Rock isn't like New York City or some other major metropolises where taxi cabs run hot and cold. They're kind of few and far between, as a matter of fact. And we need a ride home now. We need a ride back to the hotel. But before that, it appeared to be an opportunity to um, maybe go back to these folks' homes and participate in some recreational drug activity which Chris was overly excited about doing. So we go to these folks' home, which turned out to be a trailer at roughly 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. We get to the, we get to their trailer and we go inside and they've got, you know, this little, you know, it's a trailer. It's a double wide. It's a nice trailer. And, on the table, they're they're chopping up certain things and rolling up other things, and and um, <laughs> while I was while I was sitting at the at the table talking to the husband and the other couple, might have been inhaling. I, I noticed that Chris and the one of the wives, the wife obviously that wasn't there, are not there. And I excuse me, I got excuse myself to go to the bathroom. And as I go to the bathroom, I hear this, these noises coming from one of the bedrooms where Chris and this guy's wife are appear to be, at least from the sounds emanating to be in the throes of passion. And I go back to the table and now I'm scared to death because I mean, people, people are drugged up. People are drunk. Um, in a trailer park, in Little Rock, I have absolutely no idea where the fuck I am or who I'm with, frankly. And my crazy English uh, compadre is in these folks' home, barely in their bedroom. He's supposed to be doing. Yeah. And man, we the the guy starts the the husband goes to look for his wife. And wonders where they are. And I guess they had just finished up and Chris comes out and the guy goes in to, to question the wife and see what the hell's going on. And we got the fuck out of there so fast. The couple that was with us said, come on, let's go. And they got us out of there and they gave us a ride back to our hotel. That was the first and the last time that I ever went out with gentleman Chris Adams. Yeah. Let me, uh, we should state clearly for the record that uh you don't roll anything or cut anything and nothing with anybody else's wife these days so no uh, not a good no, i didn't do shit not a good right. look for anybody right there yeah it, it was it was one of those moments where your life kind of flashes before your eyes and you're you're and you take stock of your life the what headline. the hell am i doing with my life i have got to get out of here Correct. Yeah. yeah. The many, many things you, you visualize the news report, you visualize the front page of the paper and, uh, yeah. And if we did get out of there alive, you visualize the meeting with the cowboy afterwards and just nothing good could come from this. 
Um, I know you. I know we are going to tell the story uh, eventually. Let's talk about when Harlem Heat came in. Um, you're great friends with Booker T these days, and they're both based out of the Houston area, and now they're here in Global. When did they come in? What did you think of them? Did you know they were going to be a big deal as soon as you saw them? Uh, the next to last week that I was in the Global Wrestling Federation, we had finished up the show, and all of a sudden uh, I see these two large behemoths in the dressing room. And I remember thinking, and they were both dressed, uh, Booker and his brother Stevie Ray, were dressed really, really nice. And I'm thinking, I thought they were football players. I thought they were maybe Dallas Cowboy football players or something. Because they were dressed better than any of the boys <laughs> and bigger than anybody there. And they, they, they looked sharp. I mean, they looked like somebody. And they went in and, and met with Eddie. And uh, as they were leaving, I'll never forget, man, Eddie saying, all right, man, Ebony Express, I'll see you guys. We'll, we'll, we'll start you in three weeks. And they left, said goodbye to everybody. And Eddie says, oh, my God, man. He goes, did you see those guys? They're, we're going to bring them in as a tag team. They're actually brothers. I'm going to call them the Ebony Experience or Ebony Express. Ebony Experience. Yeah, okay. And uh, it was like, okay, hey, cool. Uh, that was, that was my, my first encounter with Booker and Stevie. I didn't even know they were from Houston at the time. I, I thought they, you know, again, we thought they were football players or something. Cause they looked, they looked out of place in that dressing room at that time. So it was, it was interesting, man. just to, to see the growth of both of those guys through the years. And now Booker's one of my very best pr- friends in the world and, and working with him, with his reality of wrestling and Stevie Ray down here in Texas city. It's, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> that, that one night. Um, there's lots of uh, rumor and innuendo out there that Eric Embry actually lived at the sportatorium for a while. Do you remember hearing that? I remember hearing that. I remember Paul Bearer telling me that one time I could see it. Uh, Eric liked rats and, no, I, I wasn't around Eric a whole lot. I was around Eric when he first started in the business. And now my brother Tom and Eric traveled up and down the roads quite a bit together. But, yeah, I heard Eric used to live there. Uh, Couldn't imagine. God, it's ugh. Yeah, right, see, you've kind of beaten up the sport, on the Sportatorium a lot. Do you have any fond memories of the Sportatorium at all? I mean, did anything there good ever happen for you that sticks out? Or is it all just a shit mess? Well, the building itself is a shit mess, but I had, no, man, I had a blast in the sporting tour. I had a blast while I was at Global because it was fun. There wasn't really, the only place you could go was up. Oh my gosh. So, but but I, I say that by meaning that everything that we did, there, there was purpose to it and we had fun with it. And we looked at it as an opportunity to build something. The building itself was a shithole. Always has been, always, you know, will be. They finally knocked it down. But there's so much history there. As crazy as this sounds, walking in and and working in the sportatorium, to me, was as great as walking into and working Madison Square Garden. Because they were both legendary buildings and had they were so rich in their history that it was a thrill and an honor to actually be able to get to go do that. Well, you fixed that a little bit. Uh, Ken on Twitter wants to know how you would compare working with ESPN and NBC. 
no compare no comparison and i say that only because i didn't get to directly work with anybody from espn the show was strictly produced uh with max's production company and bob bonjergi who was the producer and also one of the cameramen in dallas great group of guys but it was an independent production. We never had any interaction at all with ESPN from our part. Uh, do you remember there ever being a situation um, where Eddie Gilbert's, uh, the word they use in wrestling is demons, kept him from being at full capacity? No, never. And, you know, Eddie, Eddie liked to party and Eddie, you know, had his demons but not while at work. I never, I never, ever experienced uh, Eddie being impaired in any way in all the years that I knew him at work. After, after work, yeah, we would party. We'd have a good time. But at work, never, ever experienced that. He was always on. It was time to work and there was time to play. Uh, there was actually a lawsuit in 1992 where the WWF sued Global over using the name Global and that the WWF you know, at least from their stance would contend that this was, they were intentionally trying to create confusion in the marketplace. Um, do you remember this lawsuit? And did you think this was total bullshit? I remember it on the fringe, you know, I I don't remember it really from either side, but I thought it was silly. Come on. Nobody's going to confuse the global wrestling federation and the world wrestling federation. It's, it was just silly. It was another attempt to try and control the world, if you will. Well, but that was kind of Vince's MO. Um, I guess once upon a time, there was a penalty box in global. Can you catch everybody up about that? I remember, I thank God I wasn't there for it, but it, it, it's one of those silly deals where they used to put people in, in a penalty, bad uh, multiple man matches and, and put people in a penalty box for a, certain amount of time. No, I wasn't there for a part of that. I, I thought it was silly though. Um, did you have any sort of contact with Vince or folks from the WWF when you were in global about coming back? When did those conversations first start to come about? Zero zilch, none, nada. Uh, didn't from the time that I left Tuesday in Texas until roughly July of the next year, uh, I, I had no contact with, with Vince or anybody up there, uh, from that standpoint. So no, during, during my time in GWF, nothing, nothing. I, I was talking to WCW, but not with WWF at all. I'd resign myself to next. Brewster on Twitter wants to know if you have any thoughts on Hollywood, John Tatum, a guy we haven't talked about much here on the show. Rooster's asking us questions. Uh, Brewster Anderson. Oh, I thought you said Rooster. Hollywood John Tatum, man. His, his dad was the general manager of the fairgrounds in Pensacola. Good, close, dear, personal friend of Dave, Dave, Dave. I just had to get one of those in there. Anyway, you know, uh, man, Johnny, I thought was a hell of a talent, man. He was guy you want to have on the card i don't know that he would ever be a top guy that's going to draw you a lot of money but he was a shitload of fun to hang out with and always entertaining in the dressing room and i remember one night they did a spot with 
uh, Chaz and uh, Tug Taylor, where Tatum either swung a chair or put a chair down, and, and Chaz got his head split open. And Tug wanted to kill and fight everybody because this kid got his first hard way and felt that, that Tatum was at fault. <laughs> I remember, you know, uh, Eddie trying to, to calm Tug down, but John's just coming back and going, hey, fuck, man, you want to fight? Let's fight. And John wasn't a tough guy, but it was, and again, my opinion, I, I felt that, that Tug had overreacted, but I can also see it. That's his kid there. Um, a bloody mess, but it's a tough business and, and it, mistakes happen and shit happens sometimes. But I remember Tatum just like shrugging his shoulders, like, well, man, you want to fight? Fuck it. Let's fight. And, and that was coming from a guy that wasn't a real tough guy. Cody Olive on Twitter wants to know, was the GWF ring bell, in fact, a tire rim? I never heard most, that before. Most bells were back in the day. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it had a good, you know, had a good sound to them. Uh, Richard Wood of Vengeance on Twitter wants to know, did Roddy Piper ever get back to Bruce on his GWF promos and his influences? Because clearly you were doing a Roddy Piper tribute at times. Are you sure that Roddy just wasn't ripping me off? I'm not sure. See, there you go. See, these are the questions that we need to ask and that we really need the answers to. And just when you think you've got all the answers, we'll change the questions. Next. Um, why was Axel Rotten British? That question comes to us from Third Suitor. Uh, that seems like an easy question, but I want you to talk a little bit about Axel and Ian Rotten working in Global as the bad breed. This is years before they would be introduced to the world in ECW and had some really violent matches there. Um, and everybody has their different opinions about those two guys. But catch me up. What did you think of Axel and Ian Rotten, the bad breed? Well, Rotten kind of fit fit them. And for those of you that don't know why they why they appeared to be British was because of uh, Johnny Rotten, the punk rocker from the UK. Um, you know, I didn't work with them a whole lot. I met them probably twice in my entire life, but I never, I never got it. I just never, never got it. I didn't like that. I didn't like that extreme stuff and I didn't really care for all the blood and guts and all that extra bullshit, but that's just one man's opinion. Uh, what about your experience in working with Buff Bagwell? He was there as the handsome stranger at the time. And we got lots of question about. Uh, him having a sanitation issue. I have no idea what they're referencing. Do you have any fun, handsome stranger stories you can share? No, he finished up when Eddie came in and he was gone. He was gone quickly. A lot of those guys that were being flown in from Atlanta, all that ended when Billy Edie ended and when Eddie Gilbert came in. So, uh, when I started the handsome stranger was gone and on his way. I have no idea what you're referring to in the sanitation thing. So, but now I'm, I'm interested. I'm dying to know what the hell that is. Uh, um, so not sanitary. I don't know. You know, people just, uh, they like to poke the bear with buff Bagwell. Um, bill on Twitter has an interesting question. Did anyone treat you differently knowing that you came from the WWF either positively or negatively? And this is something I've always kind of been curious about because you were once upon a time considered to be one of the more influential people in the business. And now you're kind of on the way down, so to speak. So are people, 
uh, shitting on you here, or are they instead trying to buddy up and get knowledge of, Hey, what can get me there? I don't know that necessarily anyone shit on me. I, I took, uh, you know, I took ribbing from, you know, guys like black bar and Akbar and stuff like that. And for the most part, people would ask advice and say, Hey, what's next. But I think a lot of that too, was the fact that I was helping Eddie with the TV and I would help him set up and I would give guys finishes and go over their interviews and stuff with them. So I don't know if it was from my pre WWE days or just the fact that I was one of the guys helping him out at that point. Chris has a hilarious question on Twitter. What was it like being part of the first Nigerian millionaire scam? Uh, I'm still, I'm still waiting for my $30 million. I'm supposed to, I'm, you know, anytime now. promise me 60%. Sure. Uh, Mike Wilson on Twitter wants to know who came up with the Patriot gimmick for Dale Wilkes. He brought that to the, uh, to the organization. Did he not? I, I thought he did. Yeah. It may, it may have been Bill Eady for all we know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Andy Poole has a question. Uh, why wasn't there any branding on the ring, the skirts, the turn, uh, the turnbuckles, anything. You got me, you know, there weren't outside of the NWA. I don't know that a lot of people did brand, uh, the, the apron or turnbuckles or anything like that back in the day. And I do think they had it on the skirts. I'm pretty sure they had global wrestling on the skirts. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. I'm sure someone's going to answer that for us, but it wasn't really a common practice at that time. And especially in the WWF, Vince always liked that clean look. (laughs) You look at their, their ring now. And the, the skirts and all that bullshit and how much he liked that clean, blue, crisp look. It was just a different time. Uh, Scott Duran on Twitter wants to know, who was the guy you thought was going to be a star but never broke through and why? Um, that's a good question. Um well, Del Wilkes, for one, I thought would be a much bigger star, and unfortunately, that just didn't work out. But I think that was more due to injuries than than talent on Dell's part. Uh, I, w- I wish, but I never, I never really thought he would get there because of his size. I wish Jerry Lynn would have been a bigger star. Sure, I, I thought that was the answer. I know we mentioned him a minute ago, but we got lots of questions about Eric Embry, even if it wasn't with global, I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Do you have anything for Eric Embry we could talk about? I don't other than, you know, I remember Eric Embry first starting out in Southwest championship wrestling, uh, in San Antonio, Texas and Eric Embry for a lot of you that don't know the early years of Magnum TA, Terry Allen, I would credit Eric Embry for, the early fundamentals of Magnum TA more than I would anybody. Eric worked with him every day for so long and just provided so much insight and advice to him that it was crazy. And that's, that's my Eric Embry story. I I knew Eric in, in San Antonio, like I said before, you know, my brother traveled with him, but I didn't work with Eric too much after that. Uh, Brandon Baxter, what do you got? Brandon Baxter was out of the crowd. He was a kid that always hung around and much like, much like myself that was always there and would do odd errands and things like that. 
Joe took a liking to him, they would do a segment with with him, you know, kind of like the fans' perspective and the fans' point of view. And Brandon would get up and do interviews and, and different things. Real good kid. I got to work with Brandon uh, years later in Memphis. And now he's a DJ, I believe, in Jonesboro, Arkansas. But he was just one of those kids that was always hanging around, that always just wanted to be a part of the business. He read the dirt sheets and all that bullshit and was overly informed and just wanted to be anywhere near the business. Uh, let's run through uh, some names and uh, wrap this one up. Uh, Rasta Man, you got anything on him you could share with us? Not on Rasta Man. And, you know, I, I think I texted you the other day. Moladeeb, who came after me, was actually Ahmed Johnson, and I never knew that until just recently. Somebody sent me a link saying, you know, hey, what about Moladeeb? And uh, I looked at it and I was like, oh, my God, that is Ahmed. He was just as bad then as he was as Ahmed. So you got nothing about Rasta the Voodoo Man. Never met him. There you go. Um, let's talk about Lightning Kid and Scotty the Body and when they left Global, because they left before you did, right? No, they left. We shot a big angle, man, with uh, where we beat up Del Wilkes, the Patriot, and then when Eddie Gilbert, when it was time to turn Eddie Gilbert, I had Lightning Kid, Scotty, um, Doug, Barry Horowitz, and I think one other, and we all beat the shit out of Eddie, shoot this big angle, and then Lightning Kid and Scotty are gone. They just uh, were no more. I don't know if it was the trans for Scotty. I think he was coming in from Atlanta, and so he was one of those guys that got cut on that end, and Sean, I think, was coming in from Minneapolis. I think he got cut over there, but I never understood why the hell we shot this big angle with all these guys kind of, and we, we took pictures with my whole group. They were all a part of it and then they're gone. Just disappeared. I think it was a travel issue and, and a budget issue. Uh, what about, um, when Eddie is finally on his way out, do you remember having any sort of conversations about Eddie leaving global? Well, the, no, because Eddie, Eddie was essentially told they were going to keep him. What happened was my, my last show was actually a house show. The one and only house show that I did the entire time we were there and we ran a Saturday night. We so took a Friday night. Let's off. take a break right there. Let's make sure we got this clear. You guys had not run house shows. It's just television tapings. It's just every Friday night. The business model is producing television content for ESPN. So there's no pay-per-views. There's no house shows. It's ran completely differently. And then somebody decides we're going to start doing house shows. Uh, how does that shift in business come about? Who, who decides, Hey, we've got to do house shows. And what led to that happening? No, there were no house shows. There was a house show. <laughs> And it was sim and it was simply because for whatever reason, uh, they weren't, they weren't doing TV and we, uh, they couldn't get the equipment or what I don't, I don't even remember what the hell the reason was, but it was a house show and not no TV. And I show up, it was great because we didn't have to get to the building until like six o'clock. So, uh, Doug and I went out and, and had dinner and got to the building. And when we got to the building, 
Skandor Akbar uh, meets me at the back door and hands me a, a sheet of paper, and it's a memo. And it was, I believe it was from Joe Petticino. And it said, basically, anyone who is getting uh, trans, anyone who is on a guarantee, um, all this stuff. And essentially, I checked every box. But as of, as of now, there will be no more guarantees. There will be no more trans, um, no more anything. <laughs> I said, well, I guess I'm done. And Doug and I talked about it, and, and Doug says, yeah, man, because they, they were giving Eddie some shit earlier this week. I said, well, what about you? He says, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with me, but I figure they're not going to do trans anymore that you've seen, you know, this is my last night too. Well, on this one night, Eddie was coming in late because he, he made a later flight because he didn't have to be there early for TV, and his flight got delayed. So Eddie wasn't there on time. So we really had nobody to, to give finishes or to talk about what we're going to do that night. So everybody was coming to me saying, Hey, what do we do for a finish tonight? I said, look guys, um, as far as I'm concerned, tonight's my last night. I'm finishing up tonight. I had a match with James Beard that night with Bill Irwin as a special guest referee. And everybody's like, what, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, go ask Akbar. You know, Akbar is the one walking around here handing out memos and go ask him. You know, if he knows that, then he should know what they want. And we get to, uh, we get to my match and both Bill and, uh, James Beard are, what are we going to do? I said, well, guys, this one's no brainer. You both live here. I ain't coming back. So going to go out and you're going over. Hey, okay, well, I mean, are you sure that's what Eddie, Eddie wants? I said, guys, it doesn't matter. I'm, if, they don't, if I don't have a guarantee, if I don't have my trans, I'm, I'm not coming back. I mean, I'm not making any money anyway. So we go out. We have the match. I put James over. Horrible match. Um, come back. I get in the shower. I've got a towel wrapped around me. Walking out of the shower back to my room where I dressed. And Akbar comes up to me and says, Hey kid, what are you guys going to do tonight in your match? <laughs> I looked at him. I said, Ak, would you like to know what we did do in our match? And I says, Oh, Jari work. Now I'm standing there in a towel going to the back. I was like, yeah, Ak, uh, I put James over. And he says, how was the match? I said, fucking awful. All right, good. Thanks a lot, kid. <laughs> Just, you know, walks on to the back. Um, Eddie showed up and he says, Hey, what's going on? And I told him, uh, I said, thanks for everything. I'll see you on down the road and left. And I think Eddie lasted maybe two or three more shows after that before he finally left. He, he, when he left, he said, I'll try and get you back and see what we can do. I don't think that was meant for you. I said, well, let me know. But as of right now, I mean, I didn't do any harm me losing on the fucking heel, but you know, is what it is next. And he was gone three weeks after that. Um, well, I mean, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. He went to ECW and they were off to the races. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, some other guys that we haven't touched on so far. Black Bart. Black Bart would come into the dressing room 
and he had a seat. He would have a chair, and he would put it right on the corner of where the big dressing room was and pull up a trash can, <coughs> put his dip in, and spit all night, and basically lambast everyone that walked by him all night long. But a great character and just uh, just full of shit and full of stories constantly. But he, he was a colorful character, man, that I loved being around because he was never at a loss for words. But he would straddle, and when I say he would sit in a chair and he would straddle a trash can and just spit all night long. Put his boots on, put his shit on, and just sit there and spit and tell stories all night long. Um, what about Bill Irwin? Wow, Bill Irwin, a shoe baby. Uh, Irwin, man, he was, uh, his brother, Scott Irwin, they were the Super D's. Great tag team. Uh, Scott was a hell of a single in Atlanta as a Super Destroyer. Both great workers. For whatever reason, Bill just never made it to that top tier. I thought he had the size. I thought he had a pretty decent rap. And could work with anybody but he just never never really made it out of the box and i don't know if it was stuck with his brother for as many years as they were they were a great tag team but bill was one of those just positive no matter when you're around he was always upbeat and always positive and hey whatever you need boss hey why don't we do this what do you, what do you think about this um great guy and later on we brought him up he became became famous for being the goon in the wwf by god so we we eventually brought him up didn't do much but uh, a great guy in in wild bill Orland. uh what about uh doug gilbert we haven't talked about him beyond saying he was the dark patriot any memories of working with doug underrated worker and doug for whatever reasons just he was another one that, that never made it beyond that memphis memphis group and he did some uh he did some tours to japan with his dad and with eddie over there but uh he was always a brawling style did that ecw shit but doug could work doug just didn't have the best look in the world body wise you know he didn't have a great body uh he was bigger than eddie taller than eddie had much more size and i think if he had really devoted and trained the right way that he could have been a huge star in this business because he did have the gift of gab, had a love and a passion for the business. But sometimes I think that passion was a little misguided and he could go off on tangents and, and personal tirades that weren't always the best for business. Um, Barry Horowitz is a guy who most people listening to this know as an underneath guy for the WWF, but he wasn't always in that position with global. Do you have any memories of working with Barry and global? Barry Horowitz would drain the water tank at the hotel where we stayed. They had like one of those big Ozarka water, uh, deals. Right. And he would bring gallon empty, uh, gallons of water and just fill them up for the road. He stole water. But Barry was, <laughs> go figure, you know, right? <laughs> but I think Barry was, was as happy there in Global because he was kind of put into a good spot. 
being the, the winner's champion and had an angle and got to do something and got to have fun doing it and wasn't looked at as an enhancement guy. He was looked at as, as one of the main guys on the roster, and he deserved it. And, again, another one that was a joy to be around. He, he could be paranoid as fuck all, but for the most part, man, just a really good guy that everybody enjoyed being around. Uh, Bull Payne and his wife, Samantha. I, I don't know why, but not enough people talk about Bull Payne in 2017. No, and I tried to get Bull Payne booked in WWE, and he had a couple of tryouts. They just, you know, didn't click, man. It wasn't wasn't what they were looking for. But he was a solid, solid wrestler, uh, traveled with his wife, Samantha, who I now think is uh, Bill Dundee's wife. But they, they, were a, they were a good, decent act that I felt could have gotten more out of him. I really and truly felt that Bull could have done something up in the WWF, but his tryouts fell short, and there just wasn't a lot of interest. Vince didn't see anything in him. I, uh, I've seen him at indie shows in the last decade or, I don't know, 12 years, something like that. And that, that dude knows how to get heat with the crowd, man. He's awesome. Yeah, and he's a great guy, too. I mean, just a real nice guy. But it just, for whatever reason, just didn't click beyond that. Uh, Double Trouble. Got any memories of those guys? Double Trouble, the twins. Uh, (laughs) They're the ones that said fuck on TV and and had to have it bleeped out. You know, ESPN was funny about that. They didn't want anybody to say the F-bomb on TV at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's weird. But, you know, going back to the... ESPN relationship. Like I said, I didn't deal a lot with them, but there were things that we couldn't do. Like we couldn't use weapons. Uh, so anytime that we had a chair shot or somebody used a foreign object or something like that, you would see these just horrible crowd shots and then a, an abrupt cut back into the ring and the guy would be laid out and we couldn't show blood, but Eddie still insisted on getting juice and different shit like that. But Double Trouble was credited with uh, saying fuck and ass on promos, and they just left it and bleeped it. Instead of just stopping it down and doing it again, they just left it and bleeped it. Um, let's talk about the ESPN thing. We'll come back to some names. But the strategy here with the time slot every, every day at 3 o'clock and the reason for the cutaways is what? They didn't want to see weapons. And if we used a weapon or something, man, they just. No, fucker. They're trying to, you know, cater the show to children. They want kids to watch it as soon as they get out of school, come home from school, watch global. Uh, Parents are still at work, but you can come home and get your wrestling and uh, they can target these kids with the ads. So they need to make it a little more family friendly. So no blood, no weapons, blah, blah, blah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, goddamn, man. You watch some of these soap operas. Yeah, but pa- the kids aren't home then. The kids are at school while, you know, Victor is slinging the D on Young and the Restless at 11 a.m. What about Dr. Phil? Kids are home for Dr. Phil. My kid's watching Dr. Phil. Well, they can. That's my point. That's <laughs> on just damn regular TV. Man, I'm going to make you catch me outside. How about that? Uh, uh, t- hey. How about that? Tug Taylor and his son, Chaz, we mentioned them a little bit earlier, but do you got any fun stories you can share about these fellows? Well, I told my fun story about them earlier with, with John Tatum sure. and 
you know, I think that Chaz saw himself as that young heartthrob, uh, <laughs> chick magnet, but there, there are little things, man. Like I said earlier about, you're not going to get me in a pair of tights. Right. Okay. I do not have the body to be in a pair of tights, um, in my backyard, much less on national television. There are some of us who should be covered up. And while Chaz at the time wasn't, uh, wasn't embarrassing, but he still didn't have that rock chiseled body and he wanted to be the, the heartthrob that I don't know, man, it just didn't, just didn't work. Well, why didn't don't work. you think it didn't work? Because Tommy rich once upon a time was the heartthrob and their body type wasn't that different. Different time and different place. And in Georgia, by God, Tommy Rich had a great body. <laughs> oh, my God. You're going to get some heat for that one. Uh, what about Hey, Ron- I love you, George. My Georgian fan. God, you know what? No, this, this goes back to a fat guy calling fat guy fat. We can do that. No, I'm not arguing that. I just wanted to know, you know, Tommy Rich wasn't exactly, you know, no, he was, chiseled but, out of granite. But again, a different time where you have, where you have people like, you know, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and Dell Wilkes and Magnum TA that are, you know, body guys that, that are playing that heartthrob role. Um, you go, you come off the handsome stranger and Marcus Bagwell, say what you want to say about him, uh, had a great physique, played that role. Well, you know, I just didn't think that, you know, I, I think that people saw more in Chaz than when that was actually there and, I think sometimes his dad would handicap that by being overprotective. Last, but certainly not least Rod price. Uh, a lot of ECW fans will remember Rod for his time there, but once upon a time he was, uh, in global too. You got anything for us on Rod price? Another one. You know what? I just, while you were, uh, looking at that, I looked at my Twitter feed and I go back to the question you asked earlier about a guy that I thought would make it that didn't make it. And that's Rod price. I thought Rod price had all the tools. I thought he had the body. I thought he had the look. I thought he had the gift to gab. His work was good. And Rod, every opportunity, something would come up, whether it was a tryout or an opportunity to get in front of Vince and Pat and everybody, something would happen and it just wouldn't work out. So he was snake bit from, from day one, but I, I loved my time with Rod. I thought that he was underutilized and could have been, I thought that he could have been a hell of a star in the day, back in the, in the early nineties. I thought Rod could have made it. Well, let's, um, let's put a bow on global. Uh, but before, uh, we wrap up the episode, I think you should kind of share with everybody how your return to the WWF goes about. Uh, I know we've touched on it briefly in the past, but that night after you finished up with global, I assume you went home, you went to heartbreakers, you drowned your sorrows and a couple of Miller lights. And what happened then? Then I, I, I don't want to say I had a death wish, but I didn't care. And I would go out every single night with a friend of mine, we, we would go out drinking and then we would go out on his boat into Galveston Bay out on clear Lake. And we would run as fast and as hard as we possibly could see how much alcohol I could consume, how much dope I could smoke, how many pills I could take and still wake up breathing the next day. 
So one of these nights, while recovering, of all things, uh, from a especially bad night the night before, I had nothing to drink, nothing to smoke, nothing to take, nothing to do, and I just wanted to go out into the Gulf and clear my head. And it was right about uh, dusk. The sun had just set. That's dusk, right, when the sun sets? Yep. Okay, good. And uh, with my buddy, and we go out, and I'm driving the boat, and got it full throttle, and end up hitting the jetties, and about die. I cut my cut my throat, my chin. Everybody sees that scar on my chin. That's what that's from. Seventy eight stitches, something like that, to close it. But I also punctured my jugular. So while I was out on the boat waiting for life flight to come in and rescue our happy asses. His leg was severed and he was fucked up pretty bad looking for a shotgun to blow his brains out. My life is flashing before my eyes, which folks, it actually really and truly does when you're in a situation like that. Um, there was a part of me that just said, fuck it. And there was another part of me that said, you know what? I'm not done yet. And I, I got, uh, to the hospital that night and they, they saved me and all that other bullshit. And I remember calling Vince and that was the first time that I called Vince and that would have been in, uh, late May of 92. And I just shared the story with him and I said, I'm not calling other than to say, Hey, and that I'm alive and I'm kind of happy I'm alive from there. I jumped on a plane and I went to Hawaii for two weeks just to get away from everybody and everything and sat in Kauai on the beach for two weeks, just, um, unwinding a little bit, flew home and then flew to Hong Kong for a month, met some toy, uh, people that were in the toy business and decided I was going to move to Hong Kong, called Vince, said goodbye. And in the meantime, Dusty called me. And offered me the uh, the job at WCW to come in and be the manager of this guy I got coming up, baby. His name is Stunning Steve. And I'm thinking about making him a champion. But he needs a manager. He needs a mouthpiece, baby. I don't think you'd be able to help him out a lot. Because he's just, he's got the robe. He's got the look. He got it all. But I think he needs a mouthpiece. They're going to bring you in. Wear some of your Hong Kong suits and look all fine and shimp. Um, so I decided to do that. And then out of the blue, um, Vince calls me before he went over to the UK for SummerSlam that year and said he wanted to talk to me when he got back from the UK. Hung up. And I was like, son of a bitch. And I called him right back. And I said, are, did you just offer, are you offering me a job? What's the deal? So I'll talk to you when I get back. I said, well, hey, look, here's the thing. I already accepted a job at WCW. And I start there on whatever the date was for whatever those Monday or Tuesday shows that they had, the live specials. And Clash, of the, damn, cha- Clash of the Champions. Clash of Champions. And he said, God damn, pal, you don't want to go there. I said, well, hey, pal, <laughs> they offered me a job. You haven't. Right. And uh, we broke it down to, to him offering me to, to come back. And I told him I had to talk to Dusty first. 
tried reaching out to, to the dream for a couple days and uh, tried reaching out to Dusty and Bill Watts and Jim Ross. And after two days of them not returning my calls, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, you know, didn't have computers and emails. I sent them a Federal Express, essentially telling them that I was going to accept the position with WWF. If I was that important, uh, the way that it was built up to me to bring me back, I felt the least they could do was to call me back. And they didn't. So I went back to the WWF, had no clue how much I was going to make other than I knew that the only person I would be people I'd be dealing with were Vince and Pat. And that was it. So that's it in a nutshell. That's the reader's digest version. Uh, let's run through, uh, some more names I ran across in my research real fast, rapid fire. Uh, and then we'll get out of here. Did you, I know you became tight with JBL in the WWF, but, uh, he was in global briefly. Uh, working as John Hawk. Did you have any encounters with him there? I did not. Didn't know him, and he hadn't st- I don't even think he'd broken into the business yet at that point. Uh, Scott Levy, uh, who would become Raven, uh, did you think he would become a big deal in the business, or did you not think that he had it, or what was your takeaway at the time on Scott? I thought Scott Levy definitely had it, and I thought that he would be a huge star. Uh, let's run through some announcers real fast. We didn't touch on these guys. Uh, Craig Johnson, Scott Hudson, Steve Prazak. You got anything for us on any of those? The, uh, I worked with Scott Hudson years later when we bought WCW super nice guy. I think he's like a parole officer or something in Georgia. A great guy, but I didn't work with him in global. And the only one I really worked with was John Horton, um, Craig. And I had a lot of fun with him. He was easy to work with. And we just kind of flowed. Once we got over that first little hiccup of shoot with everything, uh, we were fine. Uh, any memories of the cartel, which was uh, the first stable formed in global and the top heel stable in 91. It was made up of um, Cactus Jack, Scotty Anthony, Rip Rogers, and Singh. Uh, any sort of memories about working with Singh or Cactus back then or anything about the cartel? Never worked with them, never worked with them. They were gone, uh, and that was the idea of bringing me in to start my own stable and me be the the top heel there. You guys did that in kind of a controversial angle where uh, you had a profanity-laced tirade that they bleeped out on the show. I assume that ESPN was cool with this because you were bleeping everything. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but you know what was weird about it? And, and that was Eddie's idea. The idea was one of on-air... I'm smiley baby face right. and uh, I'm one guy on air, but in commercial breaks, I would be a total dick to Craig. And during this one break, my microphone would accidentally be open to the audience and they would hear me going off on Craig and it would play to the audience. And I said, God damn, Eddie, you know, I mean, there's kids in the audience. He says, that's the beauty of it. He goes, no one, they're going to know it's a mistake then. You know, if it was a clean version, they would, they would wonder, oh, that's a work. But if you're saying fuck you and all this other stuff, you know, they're going to know it's real and you don't realize you're feeding the house. Okay. So we did it. And, uh, you know, folks, this would happen during the break, you know, uh, and, and it was like a mistake when they came back on that Craig was so upset that I motherfucked him during the break, called him an ass wipe and you stupid son of a bitch. I'm so fucking sick of your stupid questions and all this other stuff and just lambasted him up one side and down the other. 
And then we come when we come back on the air, I'm back to, hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Global Wrestling Federation. And, uh, wow, what a, hey, Craig, what a great match we're having here, huh? That's great. And, and then went into it, and, and that was the turn. I, I thought it was a unique way to turn somebody. For sure. In that, you know, it's like, okay, this guy's really an asshole in between breaks, and we catch him. And it automatically, it, it, it accidentally ends up on air. And the, cra- and, and the reason for him playing it to the crowd was he wanted the crowd to turn on me too there. So, different. Uh, you weren't there when they did the angle with uh, Cecil Fielder, right? No, it was not. Uh, real quick, let's run through some more names here. Uh, Scott Sim, I'm sorry, Steve Simpson, Chris Walker. Got anything on either any, either of those guys? No, neither. I, I met Steve there at the end, but uh, never worked with him. Gray Pearson, Robert Keeler, Wayne Whitworth, the guys who formed North Star Promotions that would eventually buy the rights to GWF. Anything on those guys? I met Gray early on because I knew that uh, Max was looking to to get out, but other than meeting him, saying hello, nothing. I never, and I never met any of the other guys either. And you weren't there when they hired the psychiatrist for the angle, right? Absolutely not. Uh, of course, you wouldn't have been there for the memorial show, the uh, Carrie Von Erich tribute show that they did. We should mention to everybody um, that the company went ahead and closed down on September 21st, 1994. Um, their last show aired on September 25th. And there was a little bit of life after that, because in 2013, uh, ESPN classics started airing the show, uh, that started on August 5th, 2013, the sportatorium that we talked about quite a bit today was demolished in 2003. Uh, and now you can actually catch a little bit of global on the WWE network, which is available, uh, for your viewing pleasure. Anything that we missed about global today, I feel like. Uh, we went a little longer than I would have hoped, but we still got a pretty thorough job, I think, as far as covering your time in global. Did we miss any fun stories you can share or names you'd like to bring up or give some props to? You know, I, it just was so much fun, and it was fun because I got to work with Eddie Gilbert again. And I always enjoyed working with Eddie. He's just such a creative guy, and he was always open to ideas. He was always willing to listen no matter who it was from. And Eddie viewed the business. He looked at it very seriously, but he loved to have fun. And my whole time there was, it was fun. Didn't, you know, I wasn't obviously in it for the money. It was an opportunity to get some exposure. And it was some of the most fun I've ever had in the business during that time, because we didn't have any handcuffs on. We were able to do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. And I just, I just can't get over uh, or express the joy of getting to work with Eddie again. That, that was just the fun part for me. And I do it, do it all over again. If he were, you know, if he were alive today and I had the opportunity to work with Eddie Gilbert, I'd jump at it. Can you imagine how fucking fun an Eddie Gilbert podcast would be? Oh, Jesus. You know, Eddie, and, and again, it was his own, his own demons, but his own, viewpoint sometimes as it was him against the world that kept him probably from doing 
anything in the WWF, but I think that he would have been a great asset to them, especially behind the camera uh, on the creative end of things. He's a guy that Vince would have loved to have worked with. Let me ask, um, I hate the word, the use of the word demons. Uh, I don't, I don't think it really exists the way it does outside of wrestling, but when was the first time you heard that term used? Do you recall, or if, if maybe not when, who it was in reference to? Because it feels like it's pretty common now that whenever somebody has a substance issue, they just frame it as demons. Was that God, a, was that I, I was WWF spin? Gino. Okay, so it wasn't WWF spin. Like it's not a it's not a belt. It's a title or it's a championship. It's not a hospital. It's a medical facility. That wasn't a Vinceism to. Hey, if they've got drug no. issues, say demon. No, no, I remember. I remember going back to, to Gino and, and his demons. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the bonus show and we'll see you this Friday right here on the MLW radio network on something to wrestle with. It's a bonus show. You don't have to wait as long. Why don't you say it this time? Let's just try something different. What do I say? Well, you could say your name, or we could really freestyle it, and you could say my name. Okay, my name. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> Those Weekend Golf Guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.